Hi everyone, my name is Sean Zahidi, Vice President of Brad Marketing. I'd like to welcome you to part two of Future Frontiers in Residential Real Estate, a three-part series taking you on a deep dive into the biggest challenges facing the Canadian real estate industry and the innovative solutions shaping the future of our communities. As the real estate industry grows to catch up with the increasing need of housing supply, more and more players into the field to fill the gap. From commercial developers to institutional lenders, new names are constantly emerging. And with these new industry players comes new ideas, new structures, new models, all signaling and an evolving market on the cost of change. This week, we sat down with leading industry experts to bring an exclusive and rare discussion about the growing involvement of institutional money in the residential market. Over the next hour, we'll get a first-hand understanding of this new model and explore all the biggest and unanswered market questions that have risen as a result. How did the pandemic shift institutional focus to residential real estate? Are consumer and millennial attitudes towards institutions forcing innovation for the better? As consumers become less dependent on traditional brick and mortar spaces in the favor of their online counterparts, have commercial shopping centers been pushed to adapt and become more mixed use? What can purchasers, developers, and investors all expect for the future of residential real estate? Stay tuned to find out. Today, I'm joined by two incredible guests, Daniel Marinovich and Brandon Donnelly. Daniel Marinovich is the CEO and managing part of Forest Gate, a private equity and private debt real estate investment firm with a focus on uncovering growth potential through investment into high quality assets. Brandon Donnelly is a managing director of development for Slate Asset Management, a global investment and asset management firm with a bold vision to reimagine to potential properties and markets. Hello, Dan and Brandon. Thanks for accepting uh, my invitation to attend our second episode, uh, Frontiers of Real Estate. Uh, I guess it's very crucial for our audience and the market in general to know what's happening in the market and to be able to take away something that's beneficial uh, for everyone. So uh, first off, I'd like to, I know both of you gentlemen, so at some point in my uh, you know professional life, I work with you uh, direct and indirectly, uh, but I'm going to start off with... Um, Dan, and just give us a little bit about your background, the companies you uh, you worked for, and your current actually venture. Sure, sure. Thanks, Sean, and uh, it's, it's good to be here together with uh, with Brand as well. Uh, my name is uh, Dan Marinovich, and I'm the CEO and managing partner of a new private uh, equity venture, uh, which is called Forest Gate. Uh, we launched. We're coming up on our one year anniversary uh, here in uh, in March. Um, we're uh, it's an asset management and development uh, company. We're focused in on uh, on the multifamily space, on the commercial property space, um, on development projects, and we have a little mortgage business as well. Um, together with uh, some great partners who've got long standing uh, careers and relationships in the uh, in the real estate business. And then uh, I've got about uh, 20 years in the business. Uh, I've spent the first half of my career with uh, with First Gulf. Um, I'm working on some some fairly sizable projects uh, in and around uh, the GTA in Southern Ontario. And then the uh, the last the late latter half of my career with uh, with Dream. I used to be the uh, the chief development officer with uh, with Dream and oversaw a lot of their development activity across the country. Fantastic. If I may add to that, so I've worked with a lot of great developers and, and companies over the course of my time in this business. And one of the uh, pinnacle actually projects that I've ever had a uh, pleasure to work with was uh, we kind of like indirectly work on that one together under your former flagship company. But uh, I'm really glad that you, you're you here today. So, uh, okay, next, uh, Brandon, uh, tell us more about yourself. Uh, I know we've been uh, working very closely for the past year or so, uh, but I just want uh, the audience to know you better. Sure. Thanks. Thanks, Sean. And thanks for thanks for inviting me here. It's, it's great. It's great to be honest. So 
Um, I'm the managing director of development at Slate Asset Management. We're uh, we're global investor, developer, asset manager. We're active in Canada, uh, Europe, and in the U.S. Uh, so we very much position ourselves as a, as a global company. Our biggest offices are Toronto, which is the head office, Chicago, uh, and in London. I'm responsible for kind of all of our new construction, new development projects that that falls under my business line. Um, but we really do a lot of different things. We've got you know private equity funds that that we um, that we manage. We have two publicly traded um, REITs. One is a Slate Office REIT, which is all across North America. We have Slate Grocery REIT, which is specifically in the in the U.S. and it's a pure play REIT focused on grocery or what we call essential essential real estate. Um, and then we've been growing our our business in Europe as well too, with through private equity funds and also um, executing that same grocery essential strategy in Europe. Um, and so development is really one one portion of what we what we do. But I think it gives us, you know, given the platform that we have and and how many different markets and asset classes that we play in, it really gives us a pretty broad focus and a way to look at you know every opportunity from lots of different angles. So, right, that's great. That's awesome. So, uh, for those of you listening to this podcast, so uh, we had the pleasure to work on one of the greatest actually projects in this town, future landmark of your city, One Dalal. So there were a lot of great things, and we won the project of the year uh, announced by Stories. So um, I had close relationship uh, with with Brandon, and we worked very closely on on all the details of this this project. So I'm glad that you accepted my invitation and and coming here today. One of the topics that uh, kind of been left alone in terms of when it comes to media and and, and podcasters and everything is uh, the emergence of institutional money uh, for the past, I would say, five plus years into uh, the residential arm of our business, right? Traditionally speaking, so RIT's been around and institutional money been around for, I mean, I would say maybe RIT's for 26 years now. Uh, we started off with like five RITs in the market. Now we're talking 38 plus. Uh, all these companies at all these institutions, uh, they do their best to come up with the uh, best returns for their investors, right? But um, more so in the past two, three years, especially because of COVID, uh, we noticed that there's a bigger shift happening from traditionally speaking, I would say, office buildings, um, income producing assets and into residential arm. And I just wanted to hear your point of view on that and see if you see this as a trend or if it's something you think is going to, you know, correct itself when we pass this phase that we're in uh, in terms of COVID. So I'm going to ask that first first time with uh, maybe um, go with sure. uh, Dan. Sure. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a good question. Um, I typically look to see what the smartest guys and, and girls are doing in the room. I mean, I, I look kind of to the to the pension funds. So if you look at the, the pension fund space, it's like a $2 trillion space, let, let's call it, of which um, more than far more than half is invested outside of the country than, than I would say than it is inside. I'd say that um, non-domestic investors make up more of the investment kind of capital stock within the country uh, than our own domestic pension funds. And then if you look at where the opportunity is to invest, um, you know, StatsCan, who, who tracks, you know, residential, non-residential capital stock um, investment opportunity, uh, investment uh, and the value of it, uh, said that the, the residential has actually exceeded the, the non, uh, the, the residential has exceeded the non-residential capital stock. So what does that mean? That means that we're not growing the opportunities to invest in the commercial, the manufacturing, those those types of sectors. And if you look at where we've tracked 
Canada as a whole has tracked, let's say, the, the U.S. for a long period of time. Um, they've far exceeded their um, their their uh, opportunities in, in whether it's in manufacturing or in in other areas that are uh, in the non-residential sphere. So it really puts a lot of um, pressure for places to go and invest. I mean, Canada remains a great place to to invest in, but um, it's become far more of a the, the the place that's growing the fastest. I should say is is going to be the residential space. So that creates a lot of opportunity. If you look at, you know, in order to keep up with the growth, with you know four hundred thousand people coming in annually into the into the country, a third are coming into the GTA, and within they've all got to, they they need a they need a place where, where they're going to end up going to live. So. Um, this has created an opportunity, I would say, for the larger the institutional investors to, in order to produce, you know, the dwellings and the housing that's going to be required, and in order to be able to generate the returns that they're able to need for, for their uh, for their investors accordingly. So, um, I think that it's uh, you're going to end up seeing it more and more. I mean, on for the last you know number of of decades as uh, as the condo market has really kind of boomed and exploded it's kind of replaced a lot of the older stock apartment stock that's that's been out in the market so it's given the opportunity for individual investors to buy, you know, a secondary to buy a condo for 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 people that want to uh, um, to have a, to have a small investment. Um, now, with the emergence of purpose-built rentals and institutional players are able to participate more and more in that space, and I think that's going to be something that's going to be a trend that's going to continue um, for the foreseeable future. Yeah, absolutely. So let's just ask the same question. Well, yeah, no, I, I, you know, I think it's part of a broader, longer standing shift towards the institutionalization of real estate. I mean, this has been going on for for a very long time. And I think, um, you know, it's 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 decades, really. And it's just it's the market's becoming more sophisticated. It's becoming more competitive. And, as you know, as, as you were saying, I mean, there's this wall of capital that's coming into into real estate. You know, it's one of the things that we look at really carefully because, you know, were when you have more capital than you have compelling opportunities, you're 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 getting cap rate compression, you're driving values, but we're we're constantly looking at how are values compared to the fundamentals of real estate, which is rents, rent growth, things like that. And if you look at it, and you know we have a great chart that we we show a lot of our investors in, in some of our decks, where you know we show we look at uh, we look at office valuations, for example, in 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 CBDs in, in Canada, and you look at the valuations going up, and then you compare that to rent growth, the rent growth doesn't justify those, those values. It's, it's this wall of capital that's coming in, squeezing cap rates, and that's what's driving the driving values. So, I mean, it's, this, is, this is a product of, of lots of capital in, in the industry. And so for us, a big part of the way that we think about our business is where is that capital not going? Where is that capital not flowing? Because there's lots of it. So where is it not going? And let's invest in those types of opportunities. So it's a big it's a big part of kind of our dna and how we how we think about about real estate um and i think the other thing too that, that you know that you mentioned is and there's a significant amount about a multifamily that's being developed right now we haven't done that in a long time uh certainly in this city you know we had that the, the wave in in like 60s and 70s uh and and now we're seeing that again and it started to make sense again and there's capital that wants it and and there's a significant amount of that along with condos um so there's a lot a lot in the pipeline no, that's um, that's amazing. Yeah, no, that's um, I'm hundred percent actually with you on that. So what what we see actually on their um, 
uh, we're lucky to represent a lot of developers. And what we see is we definitely have lack of supply when it comes to multi-purpose, you know, rental buildings. And what's happening, these condos being developed by developers uh, are going to be future rental buildings, you know, especially when you look at commodity projects uh, closer to core, right? So chances are the difference is I think these uh, r- rental buildings used to be owned by institutional companies, right? Now, I'm the owner of one of these units. You're the owner. And we all kind of like sharing the ownership of these condos. But I guess as you get closer to core, so you see, you know what? We don't have enough supply when it comes to rental, you know, um, uh, buildings. And this is going to fill that gap. With the amount of people coming to this country, 1.2 million people over the course of the next three years, I guess that's going to put a lot of pressure when it comes to uh, the lack of inventory that we already deal with. So it was a staggering number I was looking at in January. So the I guess the, the, the healthy market in any in, any given time uh, when it comes to uh, a resale end of the business, it's around six months of inventory. So in the month of January, just just uh, a couple of weeks ago, we were down to half a month. That's scary. That's a very low number. And that's why you, we've seen also the big shift happening uh, in terms of uh, interest shifting to like pre-construction products as well. So uh, we've seen spike in, in our number of transactions in all actually uh, over the course of, um, you know, um, last, I would say, maybe a couple of months. So let's go to the second question, technology, right? So I think, uh, um, and millennials, and the shift in terms of like shopping habits. I think these are the things that some of them, they may go away after COVID, but some will stay and they, they'll become trends. Uh, we're talking about the retail space. We're talking about like a, a, a strip plazas, you know, shopping malls. What do you think is happening to those? Because I've noticed like actually back and look at all these companies, like I'm going to name them. So I think it's okay. Uh, we're talking about RealCan, Smart Centers. So we're looking at actually uh, um, Oxford. So they, they, they're sitting a lot of these amazing uh, uh bank of land and and uh, malls and shopping plazas and everything. But at some point, I believe they have no choice but to, you know, kind of like shift and convert to, to mixed-use developments. Do you think this is like the, the way people shop these days, the way they, they commute, the, the the working from home? How much do you think these things are going to impact uh, uh, you guys and in terms of absorbing uh, investment money from your, you know, investors? Uh, there's a lot that was in that. So yeah, I'm trying yeah. to, no, I'm no. gonna try to, I'm gonna try to kind of break it all down. Yeah. So what I, I forgot I, the question. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I can so, read right on yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. So um, look, I, I would say that um, you know, regardless of who, if you are a, um, you know, if you were an owner of real estate, then you um, you want to ensure that you're doing right by the real estate always, right? So regardless if it's a, you know, if it's a, if it's a, if it's a building or if it's a plaza and 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 so on and so forth. Development is, you know, it's an interesting game because I'd say, you know, as we, and I'd love to hear, you know, Brandon's perspective, because he's probably far more of a, you know, of, a, of an urbanist and kind of urban trends kind of person than, than I would be. But, um, you know, the, the the pace of development right now and the, the pace of consumer demand is changing at such a, at so rapidly right now relative to development and construction, which moves, you know, in geological terms yep. rel- relatively, right? So the actual design, planning, construction, procurement, everything process that comes out of there is so incredibly slow relative to all this other kinds of, you're talking about millennials, you're talking about their shopping habits, you're talking about, you know, the, the values that they bring to the table, you're talking about technology, all this other kind of stuff, which is just whirling around quickly. And then at the same time, you're trying to bring all this stuff where you're taking on a tremendous amount of development and construction is to kind of bring it to market so coming back to it, when you're asking about you know the, on the property ownership side if you have 
uh, investments of magnitude, you're always trying to balance out, you know, what's the what's the current generation? What, like how, pro- how productive is your land? Whether you're a real estate owner, if you're a farmer, you're trying right. to figure out how productive your land is um currently and then you know what you know what's the what's the maximum amount of potential that you can get given all these kind of dynamic factors that they're coming up but i'd say that that's it is definitely it's a challenge because there's an, an enormous amount of disruption right now whether it's you know in the construction supply chain or whether it's uh you know whether it's consumer habits that you're saying right now but um the best thing that you can do is is plan really really well and take very very small cautious steps and uh you know measure yourself as my dad used to say kind of measure twice and cut once and uh, i think that's what you kind of that's the approach that i generally take yeah that's it that's a nice take on that yeah brandon what do you think i'm still trying to remember your question but but i I think uh i think we're all sheep in 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 the industry and and right now it's it's residential and, and industrial that's that's very popular obviously and 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 part of it is speaking to the trends that you were talking about i would say that we are like a lot of people in real estate are still very bullish on office space. For example, it's funny, you know, if you ask people in real estate, they'll, you know, the, t- the typical response is or the consensus response is that, you know, you know, you're bullish on office. We're all going back to offices. If you ask people in tech, no one's going back to offices. Yeah. And so, you know, to be to be a contrarian in tech, you just say people are going back to offices. But, you know, we, we really believe in in um, in cities, in office. We just actually announced a portfolio of 23 office buildings in, in Ireland. So we are buying. We are still buyers of, of office. So we believe in, in that space. And then I think, you know, on the retail side, the e- e-commerce question I mean, we've been, uh, I mentioned earlier, but we've been investing in what we refer to as essential real estate or last mile logistics um, kind of real estate, which is which is grocery anchored retail plazas and across the US. And it's been over a decade that, that we've been we've been doing that. And you know, the interesting thing about that is, is that, you know, the market in our view kind of mispriced those assets for a long time and just kind of painted it with the retail brush and said, mm-hmm. oh, it's retail. Oh, we don't want retail because yeah. e-commerce is just right. is, is everything. So, you know, the, it, there was mispricing of assets. When we looked at it, we said, this is actually really important logistical fund, uh, fulfillment centers for, for yes. grocery, if you think about it out that way. So even if you look at a company, for example, like Instacart, right, which is, you know, it's, it's, it's grocery delivery, where is, where is that food coming from? It's actually, most of it's coming from grocery stores. So somebody is physically going to the grocery store, picking all the stuff up and then delivering it to you. So the fulfill, fulfillment still happens in that space. So that grocery store is a box, like an industrial box, and it, it has food in it. And it serves a very important purpose. So when we looked at that, we said, we believe that this, this real estate has value. And so we've been buying it for a very, very long time. And I think this pandemic actually has proven that thesis out really well for us because it was really resilient. Our, our, our rent collection was you know high 90s. Um, and, and grocery sales went through the roof, obviously, at the beginning of the yeah. pandemic. But it was, just, it was a very resilient asset class. And so... Um, you know, that model has proven out in our view, um, particularly during this, this time period. Yeah. Uh, I just want to add yeah. that because just coming back to the whole thing, like I, I'm old enough to remember <laughs> when, you know, uh, the, you know, the suburban, uh, grocery or the retail centers, that was the multifamily of the time. It was, you know, you had standard right. like 25% coverage, you know, you kind of, you were able to, and they were, uh, they were growing at a, at a very rapid rate. Now all of a sudden, I mean, you know, they, they basically came totally out of favor uh, a number of years ago, but now uh, people are trying to f- figure out ways to kind of unlock value and using, using, using creativity. Right. So, um, 
that will just that will always continue so right now you know obviously multifamily is, is obviously very high in demand obviously industrial is very very high in demand but um as they kind of go you've sure you know brandon talk about office space and and the whole bit i mean there are people that are out they're trying to figure out again coming back to the concept of making sure that your your land and your buildings are as productive as possible trying to figure out how to unlock value and the one thing about real estate is that it's a, it's a tangible operational business and uh, the smart people that are out there are going to be able to figure out exactly how to unlock that value yeah, I agree with that. Actually, I was reading something about Walmart. They're kind of like uh, reallocating all their spaces to, uh, within their retail spaces mm-hmm. to be able to fulfill all these um, you know, orders that they come in from e-commerce, right? At the end of the day, you're right. So these are amazing spaces that they own. But it just comes down to reallocating the space to uh, serve the need that they uh, have uh, when it comes to fulfilling these e-commerce uh, orders, right? Okay, I'm, I'm glad that we, we got here. Um, innovation. There is a perception out there when it comes to institutional money. I guess, private equity to some extent. Uh, there's some resilience when it comes to younger folks and millennials. You know, they want to change the world. They want to do everything. They're, they're not just about, you know, returns and, and numbers, right? Uh, how much do you see, like, I, I know, like, you're a fairly newer company, like Forescape, you know, how much of that do you think is going to have impact in terms of how you're going to operate in terms of, like, um, the way your 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 product and your funds can produce return? Do you really pay attention to those details? Because I was reading something very staggering numbers. So they're one trillion dollars uh, going to be transferred to next generation millennials, mm-hmm. and they think a little bit different in terms of money and how what they want to do with it. And uh, just want to ask that question: How do you think the money has to be invested on in what type of products to be able to have all these newer, younger? investors with you over the course of you know next decade or so what sure it- no i mean i think that uh the, the the changes that have been happening within the the construction and development industry have been occurring over uh you know a fair bit of time if you see the emergence of lead and if you see the emergence of um you know higher construction standards in general um they've definitely it's raised the it's raised the bar and there's a lot of you know communities out there that are striving for net zero and there are other people who are trying to everyone's trying to come up with with a rest because they understand that um that the younger that it's so important to younger generations in terms of just being you know uh you know having that uh degree of 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 compassion and empathy within the community and also uh and care within the actual development and construction process so i'd say that that pressure has been being on, on an industry that has remained relatively unchanged since the time of the Romans, basically, right, has been, you know, like, has been evolving over time in order to, um, in order to, um, in order to meet it now. It does beg the question uh, in terms of, you know, um, we're, we're struggling with an affordability crisis right now. We're struggling with getting things pr- approved as, as in, in, a, in a timely fashion. We have, we have big barriers that, that are out there. And so um, I think that that is, uh, you know, that's going to be the challenge upon any developer to ensure that um, that they craft the, the product that they're going to craft in order to be able to meet the, those demands according. But I think that you're, I think there's a lot of people, there's definitely examples of tons of people that are doing it, uh, that are doing it well, whether it's, you know, incorporating solar or they're putting you know tesla chargers in their in their, in their homes i mean there's uh, i think there's there's um uh, you know we're, we're seeing the the, the parking ratios re- reduced a, a, a fair bit you're seeing you know developers offering uh, uh b- bus passes we're seeing all, all kinds of different incentives in order to gravitate to that that newer buyer um and and certainly like the, the emergence of things like co-living and, and other kind of things that are out there right now are, uh, are at the forefront as well in order to be able to uh in order to meet those demands mm-hmm. great so 
Yeah, you know, there's there's a general awareness today around urbanism. And there's a lot of pa- people who are really passionate about cities and urbanism you see on Twitter or wherever. I mean, just the conversations that are happening around housing affordability and design and planning and 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 bike lane, all of these types of things. There's a general interest and passion, I think, around it. People are very engaged, which is great. Yeah. No, I just want to ask uh, another question. I've been very curious uh, for the past year or so since we've been working on on One Delisle, but I just want to look at it in terms of like um, uh, uh, institutional perspective when it comes to like uh, these type of like unique and landmark projects. Because if you are to get in front of developers, uh, sorry, investors, and to to be able to justify, okay, this is the timeline, this is the cost, it's everything. Do you think by uh, I, I guess you were very innovative in terms of like what do you guys design when it comes to one Delisle, but it wasn't guaranteed in terms of like uh, fulfilling your investors' need and returns. Maybe to some extent, I'm not sure. Maybe you, you can answer that. But I mean, how much do you think by pushing uh, you know the envelope and going outside of the box, not delivering like commodity projects? How much of that you think is gonna help to get more people from the millennials in in this case on board with your products and your 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 developments? I mean, maybe for everyone's benefit. I mean, one one Delisle just at a high level is, is a new a new uh, residential condo that we're developing at Young and St. Clair in Midtown. It's forty seven story. We're we're uh, we're working with Studio Gang Architects out of Chicago. Um, it's a landmark project for for our company. Um, I, I think you know the obviously we've invested in in architecture and design for a project like that, and there's a real cost to doing that. I mean. You're speaking about construction costs. I mean, construction costs are through the roof. I mean, right now, m- most people are are seeing you know one percent a month kind of increases. I mean, it's just constantly increasing. It's very challenging to do this this type of stuff. So obviously, we're making an investment. Our partners are making an investment in design, and and you have to justify that in in some way. So what is what is the ROI of doing something like that? And and part of it is yeah, it's 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 to help drive demand. And can you get a premium for um, for this type of type of offering? Um, you know, it's things like that, which, which obviously we, you know, we've, we've been able to justify that to ourselves and our, and our partners. But I think the other thing too, that's maybe unique about, or it is unique about Young and St. Clair and what we're doing there is, is we own, you know, we own eight other office buildings at, at the, um, at that intersection, all including all four corners of the intersection. And so we have a vested interest in that, in that node, in that community. We've been doing that for over a decade now. And, and so part of this is, it's a great submarket. It's it's you know it's surrounded by some of the wealthiest communities in, in the city and the country, um, but it also for us is it's we do something special there and it helps everything all of our efforts at, at Young and St Clair. So, and I think that's that's kind of you know that's one of those things where to kind of go full circle. I mean the fact that we have institutional backing for something like that allows us to kind of have that longer term vision and really build this out as as a broader kind of city building initiative at that at that intersection great that's amazing so um okay I so I, I, yes but. yes no i mean uh, there are a lot of questions about that project <laughs> sure because yeah, yeah so um partnership between developers and uh institutions right i guess uh, we hear more and more institutional uh guys try to um uh create partnership with uh smaller local developers i guess i was reading something is very becoming very popular actually in vancouver i believe we see some in 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 city of toronto i just want to take uh have you know hear your take on this uh uh as a private equity guy so is it what is it you're looking for in terms of partnership when it comes to developers do you even have that in your foreseeable future or are you going to put your own brand into your uh, future developments sure so again let me unpack a, a, a bit there 
there, um, you know, historically, I would say, you know, and historically and generally, um, uh, d developers were either, you know, family businesses or they were, uh, you know, small or small, you know, private companies, let's say, just generally speaking. Right. Um, and then as more and more of institutional capital started to get in, into real estate, they started to try to get, you know, closer, closer to the, to the front end of the development space. So, you know, once upon a time, I would say as a, as a developer, I mean, you know, you, you know, you, um, you're in the business of, of creating product, you, you know, you put up your balance sheet, you put up your equity, you take on the construction risk and it wasn't something necessary. And then you actually own, and then they actually own new assets. There was I mean, a lot of the, you know, the big, um, you know, trophy kind of, uh, um, real estate assets around our, our, our city were owned by by privates until you know they started to kind of uh, uh, transfer into institutional hands and the whole bit and then solely over time as the demand again because we have a relatively fixed investment space um, you know institutional capital and, and investors were, were getting closer and closer um, into 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 the real estate ownership and now into onto the development side as well because um, the, the 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 return and in, in just to actually secure um, you know, a, a class A type of product or, or you know, a, a, like their, their yield profile will be a lot more competitive than, than a developer's would be. Right. So, um, so I think that, um, and now you can see it within, within a lot of the, within all the big groups that they've kind of all formed their, you know, their, their development groups and they're kind of looking within their portfolios to try mm -hmm. to expand out their portfolios and, and the whole bit. And so I think that that trend is just going to continue on, um, for the, for sure for the, for the foreseeable future. And, um, but that being said, um, I do, I do strongly believe that there's a lot of opportunity for uh, development, not just in within kind of the, the traditional boundaries of call it the four and six nine oh five, but I think there's a greater conversation in and around uh, the, the region and the province because there's a tremendous amount of infrastructure and spending and investment that's happening all over the place. The pandemic has definitely changed people's uh, work habits and work expectations in terms of the flexibility and work from home and uh, you know what, what kind of constitutes. Uh, you know, core Toronto versus outside of the Toronto. I mean, uh, basically anything in the, anything in Ontario is kind of the nine oh five, the new nine oh five right now, um, and uh, and we're seeing it. And so, you know, our a group like ours. I mean, we have uh, you know we have uh, a development book that we're slowly growing, and we're going to be making some announcements soon. And uh, and uh, we're but at the end of the day, we're, we're we're quite we remain pretty optimistic about the potential within uh, within uh, within our province, within our country. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. So, Brandon, what are you guys looking in terms of partnership with developers, if any? Because I know for the for the past two last two developments that you guys did, you went solo in terms of name. Correct me if I'm wrong. In terms of like, you don't have any developer mm -hmm. partner on those sites. But do you are you guys still looking for a future partnership with uh, local developers per se, or is it something that Slay is going to continue going solo on their projects? Uh, we are open to partnerships, but what I will say is we are the, we are the, the, we are actively managing every investment that we are involved in. So we, we never deploy capital passively into investments and rely on, on some other manager to execute on, on a strategy. So we are always, we are always doing the doing in, in all the projects we can, we can do that doing with somebody else. And, and we're open to that, but we just, we are always, we are always the active manager. Um, you know, we raise money, we raise institutional money and we put that to work. And part of, part of the, the way that we do that is, is that we have a track record of executing. And we, so we, we continue to do that and we co-invest alongside uh, any partner. 
Great. No, that's a, that was a great answer. Yeah. Thank you for that. Um, I, I, I guess I want to finish off by asking this question. I know both of you gentlemen, they have different point of view when it comes to this. Uh, I believe Dan is more into nine to five in terms of opportunities and future of where the money's going. And uh, with Brandon, you're more of a 416 guy. So I just want to ask that question as our last question. Uh, what do you think is happening in terms of like post COVID in terms of opportunities? Uh, I know that you mentioned, um, 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 uh, off camera that you guys are looking for great opportunities outside of core but uh, what do you uh, do you think this is going to last do you think this is going to be future uh, of our uh, potentials in terms of investments uh, that would be great if you can uh, first of all, I, I, take, I take a lot of offense that you're trying to create a, some division between <laughs> yeah. myself and, and <laughs> Rand. First, and, first and foremost, <laughs> I, uh, I, I care about him quite a bit, and I take a lot of offense to <laughs> that. I, I actually, I actually don't. I don't think that it's a core, non-core. I actually think it's actually, it's actually exponential. To, to be, to be pretty blunt, because again, I come back to it to say. Um, given all the things that you've said, you've talked about. So you've talked about, uh, you know, the buying trends of the next generation. You talked about, you know, we've talked about, um, you know, the ability uh, for a, a large population to, you know, to work from home. You talk about massive amounts of an infrastructure investment that are happening in terms of regional rail and everything throughout yeah. our, throughout our, which are going to, which are going to connect every, connect everybody together. We're talking about affordability and the inability to kind of, to, to, to be living within sort of traditional uh, neighborhoods and, and boundaries and stuff. Um, but at the same, on the flip side, I think people want to get back. Like people want to go back to restaurants. They want to live. They want dy- they want a dynamic environment. They want to they want to go hang out, and party again, have drinks, and do the whole thing. So, um, I you know, in my heart of hearts, I I honestly believe that um, that the growth is in is going to end up being exponential, especially as we you know we do have huge targets um, for uh, for immigration, which is wonderful. Um, uh, my biggest concern is um, whether or not we've got the ability to get them through the 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 the, the planning process as quickly as possible. Whether or not we got the people to build them. Um, I mean, over the course of the pandemic, we had you know fifty thousand people left uh, the trades um, uh, in an industry which is already in tremendous need for uh, for new for new blood to basically t- to, to take over. I'm 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 at fault. My dad was an electrician. He told me do whatever you can you gotta do to stay off the construction sites. So like <laughs> I, I contribute. I, I'm a I'm a prime contributor to the affordability <laughs> crisis. Um, but um, you know, all things being said, is like we we just we need that. We need more. We need more Wonderlas. We need more. Uh, you mean more townhouses? We need we need more of everything in order for people to be able to have you know great places to live and great communities across Ontario. Mm-hmm. That's great, Brandon. Yeah, I, I wouldn't. I don't think there's a there's a for us there's no four one six nine zero five divide. I mean, we're we're across the region, we're across Canada. Um, you know, as I said before, we're in we're in the U.S. and Europe and other markets like that. So we're we're looking um, broadly at opportunities. Um, I, I would you know echo what, what Dan said in terms of we're very bullish on on cities, and you know my personal my my view is my personal view is just that we this. If you look at the narrative at the beginning of this pandemic and that cities are dying and we're all going to decentralize and move out and offices are dead and all that kind of stuff, that was totally overblown. And it is not going to play out that way. This is not the first pandemic that the world has ever seen. And it is, it, this has always been the case. I mean, if you look at, if you go back and look at, um, you know, pandemics in, in Venice and boats coming in, they had to quarantine for two weeks off the harbor to wait, you know, for those people. I mean, we've been doing this. This is what, what's always been the case with cities, right? I mean, this is, you get a lot of people together and this is what's going to happen sometimes. So I just think that cities are really resilient. Um, we're going to continue to see lots of growth, like, like you're saying. Um, 
And so we've, we've, you know, we've stuck to kind of the, the fundamentals and the way that we look at, we look at opportunities. We've got development sites, obviously in Toronto, but we also have things in the 905 in Hamilton. We have a project in Hamilton that we're working on. And, you know, for us, we look at a market like that and say, you know, this is a transit connected, uh, downtown center that's walkable that has great restaurants that has great amenities and so we believe in that market and you know we think that that's that's going to be the case after after we get through all this and it feels like we are kind of at the beginning of the end of this so um you know i think i think there have been trends that have have accelerated you know if we get back to e-commerce and things like that i mean that was already chugging along and e-commerce penetration was growing that was already happening and you know certainly got a boost right now um, but I don't, I don't think that we are have fundamentally changed or pivoted how we think about real estate opportunities and saying that this is dead and this is no longer going to be the case. I mean, people are still going to get together in cities and hang out and and socialize and they like to be together and work in offices and all that. And that's 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 what we believe. That's that's amazing. Yeah. I was looking at some um, uh, stats from uh, last quarter of 2021, and the absorption rate was 86% for all uh, projects actually launched in, in uh, Q4 of 2021. That's a testament to what you just said. We've been very resilient when it comes to uh, uh, um, core, and I think that's going to be the case moving forward. A lot of opportunities. So I just want to thank you both uh, uh, being here today. I know you're both busy guys, and uh, it's a very... Um, uh, um, uh, it was a very interesting topic and we could go on and on and on. I Do you know. declare a winner? Is there a winner? Uh, like this or no? <laughs> uh, Dan, for the sake of this conversation, conversation. <laughs> yeah, we don't have a winner. But I, 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 at the end of the day, I think our audience and listeners would be the ultimate winners here. So we're going to have amazing actually takeaways like from what you guys said. <laughs> uh, so I guess, I guess that's the whole point. Yeah. And just going back to your, your point, uh, uh, you said last in terms of like the lack of uh, labor, the trade and issues, everything. So I really highly encourage everyone to listen to our first podcast that we did with Terry Olnick and Nama Blunder when it comes to planning and uh, uh, construction world. So I guess that's going to be very beneficial uh, for our uh, listeners as well. Thank you again. Thanks for your time and hope to see you guys soon again. Thanks, Sean.